we'll be back in Luke chapter 6. And we did, last week, we just did a couple verses. We did 43 through 45. Remember what we did last week? Yep, we did the... Lordship Salvation. Yeah. I don't know how you say that. And so the first 46 through... Through 49, we'll read. We kind of it kind of attaches to what we did last week, so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time there because it deals with the same issue. So, verse 46, Jesus says, "Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug a, dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock, and when a flood occurred." The torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation and the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed. And the ruin of that house was great. So you see here a picture of two different builders. One of them does it right. They do it the way the Word of God says to do it, and one of them doesn't. They ignore the Word of God, and when trials or... I think you can take this two ways. You can, you can apply this two ways, <clears throat> where if somebody hears the gospel and believes it, then they build their house on a foundation that will withstand the judgment of God, because that's the only thing that will stand against the judgment of God is, this, is the gospel. And then you have somebody who hears the gospel and rejects it, and then they build their life on, on the sand. And, and when the judgment comes against that life, it will not stand. But I think you can also apply it to the Christian to where just because you're saved doesn't mean that you still can't disobey, that you still, we still have a choice to obey or disobey. You know, we believe what the Word of God says, but it's, it's important to also do what the Word of God says. And if you do things the way God says to do them in the Bible, then your life, when trials come along, they won't rattle you as much. Where even if you're a Christian and you're, and you're doing things your own way, when the trials and, and, the, and the tough times come, it'll, it'll expose where your idols are. And it'll, it, you will eventually what you have going on there in your life is going to collapse until you get back to doing things the way God wants you to do them. But you see the picture there, obedience is the only way. Obeying the Word of God is the only way to build, to do it the right way. And, uh, and so, again, we talked about Lordship last week. We're not going to go back into that. Alright, we beat that horse to death. I think we did several times. Alright. I still always try and read my notes here. Any questions on that? It's pretty straightforward. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And one verse I did have that is pretty applicable to that. It's a pretty big word for me. It's 1 John 2, 4. The one who says, I have come to know him and has come to know Christ, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 
And so you see clearly that so anybody, and this is what we dealt with last week, that, that faith that has no obedience after it is not saving faith. But we always are careful to understand that, that you're, you're not right with God by your obedience, but saving faith will always produce obedience. And so this is one of those verses that just clearly say, if you know, there are people out there who say that you can accept, well, this is what we talked about last week, is that you can accept him as Savior but not as Lord, that you can actually be a Christian with absolutely no obedience. And this one verse refutes that. It says if you say you know him and then you don't keep his commandments, of course not perfectly, and it's progressively, it starts, everybody starts immature as a Christian no matter how old you are. And then you grow, but you will have some obedience immediately after after you're saved you actually have your first obedient act in your whole life because you'll have it from your heart to the god you now know but you see clearly that it says if you say i know him but you don't have any concern for what his commandments are it's it calls you a liar it says you're not a christian and that's where you test somebody who says well, I'm a Christian. Their, their profession is I'm a Christian, but they have absolutely no desire to obey the Bible or even know what it says. You know you're dealing with somebody who has a false profession. And that's when I think the lordship issue is, as we talked about, and, and when, when it's challenging a profession, a fruitless profession, is when it should be applied. All right. So now we're going to get into chapter 7. Man, it's hard to believe how many chapters are in Luke. I don't want to know. Yeah, we're going to be here a while. Twenty more than that. Twenty-four. Twenty-four. So we got a long way to go. That's all right. We'll take breaks here and there. All right. So now we're going to get into the a centurion's servant is healed. Chapter seven. When he had completed all this discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders, asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him. And he loves our nation, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built our us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my slave, Do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. All right. Imagine that. He, he got healed. I figured he yeah, he figured he would. All right, we're going to go through a couple issues here. Um, obviously, this is a centurion, and you see the word slave there, and a lot of people, um, I don't know if you've, you've heard or, or listened to people who talk about slavery in the Bible, and they use that as a reason why they don't think the God of the Bible is the true God, because 
how could he condone slavery and you go through all these issues and the and the reason they do that is because in this in America we have the history of slavery in our country that was, and that was sinful slavery that was in American slavery it was literally kidnapping and against the will of the person and enforcing them into slavery which is what we had but in biblical times you know in 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 the old testament and in in obviously in the roman culture you had what is slavery it was more indentured servitude it was more of a contractual agreement where somebody couldn't afford to live and so they would tie themselves to a family or an owner and they would they would say okay i'll work for you for this amount of years and then you provide for me and then they were the word also could be translated servant but in a sense they were they had voluntarily enslaved themselves to these people so it was nothing like american slavery where it was against somebody's will and it was kidnapping as a matter of fact the old test the old testament um, Exodus 21:16 says, "He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death." So there's a death penalty for kidnapping in the Old Testament, and then in um, 1 Timothy 1:10 talks about people who, uh, uh, who uh, I can't remember the context of it, and it says, "And immoral men, and homosexuals, and kidnappers, and liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine." So you see the list of, of, so you see clearly both Old Testament and New Testament that kidnapping, which is, is what American slavery would be, was forbidden. As a matter of fact, it had the death penalty to it in the Old Testament. And so whenever you hear, you'll hear people say that all the time. Well, the God of the Bible endorses slavery, and not again. We're, we're talking about two different issues. But also another thing you got to consider is the Bible. Do you know the difference between descriptive passages and prescriptive passages? To me, the words alone, okay. one says, descriptive says what really is. Okay. And prescriptive, what we thought it was going to be. All right, what do you think, Dad? I think prescriptive is telling what, what should be. Okay, and what would descriptive be? What would be the difference? What took place. Right. So what you have here is is there are prescriptive passages in the scriptures, which are commandments. They, this is what God clearly intends for us to do. And then you have descriptive passages, descriptions of, of events that happened, but don't necessarily, obviously, God doesn't approve of those things. Like a good example would be David committing... Adultery and having her husband has having Bathsheba's husband killed. Those are just those are descriptive passages, so you don't read that and say, "Oh, look, God must endorse adultery and murder because." You're both a little way off. Your dad was a little closer. <laughs> no offense. So you see, and so you have that too. So just because the Bible records things happening doesn't necessarily mean that God endorses them. So you have to sort through what, what God's intentional will is, or his prescriptive will, what he wants, what he clearly commands. And so that's another issue that you have to deal with with some of these slavery issues. But I just we're not going to go too deep into it, but for the most part you just need to know that biblical slavery was not 
what American slavery is. And so people in America who hear the word slave or you read the word slave, you go, whoa, you know, there was, you know, because there's commandments to a slave in the New Testament to obey his master. Again, it's more like what we would have as employment, but it was not the same. We, we are employed differently than they were. They were actually owned by them voluntarily, and they had it once they became in a contract with them in that sense, and then they were obligated to that, and they were, in a sense, owned for that time period. So it's not like what we have it now, but the purpose of it was that, was your only, that might be your only way you can survive. It might be your only way you could have food, or you might owe somebody more money than you could ever pay, and so you just would indenture yourself to them say okay instead of going to jail or paying that you know whatever penalty would be for that you would and you would uh all right so and you can see here in the verse where it says and a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him he so this is not slavery like what we had in america where they were just property and they had absolutely no concerns for them i mean you can see in this whole thing what he's trying to do he's trying to, to get help for him and so the centurion obviously was a godly man, and he cared for his slave, and that's why he sent these people to Jesus to get it to, for him to heal him. All right, and another thing, if we go into Matthew, and this is a good lesson to learn, okay? Now I'm going to read you the same thing in Matthew, and I want you to tell me if you hear something that would catch your attention. Okay, I'm going to read the same. Now we just read this in Luke, and now we're going to read this in Matthew. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion slave came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is dying, or is lying, sorry, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fear, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my slave, Do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith in anyone in Israel. All right, so there's Matthew's account of the same event. Did you notice anything different? How about you? Okay. All right, well, in, in Matthew chapter 8, in Matthew it says, a centurion came to him imploring him. Okay? And in Luke it says, in verse 2, and a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him um, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. See the difference? One says he came to him, and the other one says he sent some Jewish elders asking him. So, what would you say about that? Is that a con does the Bible contradict itself? This is a good okay. That's a good attitude to have because it doesn't. And so, but you'll see, you know, people will point these things out, and you, if you're not ready for it, because it's just like if you ask two witnesses in the car wreck. Okay, then they, what if I came back to you and said, well, the Holy Spirit inspired both and they're inerrant. So there's not like you can say, well, a couple people saw it differently and wrong. Because the Holy Spirit inspired both of these. So they're both absolutely inerrant without error. Okay. Impossible to have error. How can that be? 
There you go. That's a good question. It's a tough question, but I want you to think these things. I want you to be ready for these things because they will come up. And this is not the only place. Well, the Holy Spirit can't be wrong. Right. And so, so that's a good attitude to have. Your main, your, the main thing I'm trying to teach you is, first off, you have to have you have to have that kind of an attitude towards Scripture where you just say, it cannot be wrong. Because it cannot be wrong. Okay, But then we say, okay, let's work through this. Because there's, there's a whole lot of things in the Bible, and this is true, that apparently contradict itself. Apparently is a key word. But as we know, the Holy Spirit, God has inspired every word and it's inerrant. And so you got to work through these things. But there's always a logical explanation for it if you work through them. But you see how you, you have to... You have to um, especially from people who challenge the, the text, they'll see that and say, hey, here we go. Can't be God's word because one says this and one says that. And the, the clear, the easy explanation here is there's expanded, and this is usually how it goes. One author, Luke, gives more detail. That's all. So in a sense, the centurion came to him in Matthew, but it just leaves out the details that he came to them, quote-unquote, through these Jewish elders. <laughs> So yes, different different authors have different details. Go ahead. I was just my hunter. Oh. <laughs> Your hunter? I was talking about hunter because the, the girls went out that door and Gracie hit the doorbell. And of course Hunter goes Berserko when he hears the doorbell. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's why she hits. So yes, the what we, well, how we'd explain this is that a centurion came to him. But it just there's more detail on how he came to him. He came, he sent mediators. Yet Matthew just I mean, just they are saying the same thing, but there's more detail in Luke. Yeah. And so that's the clear explanation of it. But again, you when you read through those, because there's a lot of times that you'll you'll see things, and and there have been many times where I've been stomped on something, and I'm like, Lord, this does appear contradictory and but i've genuinely if you, you know if i'm from my heart seeking i'm like lord i know you don't contradict yourself show me help me out here done, yeah grant me wisdom and so but i'm glad you have that attitude towards scripture and because i was going to pull up some verses here where the bible addresses no. how it is to itself no. or it, it, well that's why you got that safety thing yeah, which most, like we don't have it set up, right? We've yeah, got, you just pull it. No, you hook, you're supposed to hook it to you, so if you fall uh, down, it pulls. Okay. If you, if you, if you, no, if you've got it in there, and you fall down, tough luck. Yeah. It wouldn't come out? Yeah, if you, if you don't have the safety key hooked up. It's not up to you. You have to hook it to you yourself. Huh. I mean, that's the way it's designed, to be hooked to you, too. So here's a couple of scriptures that... The scripture itself testifies that it is the word of God. And so again, I want to I always want to emphasize like I said, I'm glad you had that attitude about and you in as a Christian person, and there are different I run across different degrees of this, but the the, the higher view you can have of scripture, the better. I mean it, it is every word is inerrant and you have to we we did the whole uh, that was a couple years ago where we did the transmission of the text how it, from the original manuscripts all the way down to what we have today. We did a little more detailed less than a couple years ago. But the Bible itself claims it is the Word of God. 
Psalm 19.7, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 2 Timothy 3.16-17, 3, this is the one most people know. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Every word of God is tested. This is Proverbs 30. Five and six. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. Um, Psalm 19, 8 through 10. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter than all than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Then I have psalms are uh, the psalms are songs and poems, right? Psalms are yeah, they're they're usually for music purposes, but they're still scripture. But there's some poems too, right? No. Crazy. <sighs> Yeah, they're praising God, and they're most of them are, are hymns, but you know, for, for songs, put music. But I don't, I don't know if I'd say any of them are poems where they like rhyme and things, you know. So are all songs put to music? A lot of, I mean, over time they have been. There's a lot of psalms. We've been through a couple of them. I think there's like 150, yeah, or more. But at one time they were songs. And they still are. People, a lot of there's a churches that have actually what are called psalm only music, where they only the only music they sing are the psalms of the Bible, just because they're. And that's, that's, I mean, there's nothing for because the in uh, the New Testament it says that we are to sing psalms, songs, and, and spiritual or songs, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so you have a variety there, but you can't go wrong with singing the psalms because those are inspired words of God, and and yes, they're all praising to Him. There's different, and there's sorrow psalms. We'll have to go through a few more of those. That's one thing that uh, Don Green and the Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, I was, he's been going through the psalms, and they're up to 98 or 99, and they've done every single one of them. Oh, my God. And sometimes they'll do two or three hour-long things on one of them. Very detailed, very good. Psalms are good to be in, especially if, you're, if you need encouragement. The Psalms are a place a lot of people go, and I go there quite frequently when I need encouragement because they are, they they really generally point up to the Lord, and there's a lot of a lot of sorrow. Well, you know, ones where David is suffering and under persecution, or he's being chastened by the Lord, and a lot of kind of things where you can be in that, you can kind of experience that with him. But you see here where the scriptures testify of themselves that they are not only the word of God but they are perfect and pure and tested and so and the reason you believe and trust in the scripture is because you've been born again that's it you would you would and that there really is the dividing point is a person who's born again they, they might not necessarily have the highest view of scripture they should have but they will believe it's the word of God but if you, and this is what my note says, is this is what I say to people. When asked if the Bible has been corrupted, my response is usually this. The God, of the, Bi the, God the Bible describes created the universe by speaking it into existence. A God with that kind of, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. A God with that kind of power can preserve his word. And so there's the issue. That's my, there, there's my trust, is the God the Bible describes 
he he inspired his word for a purpose for purposes and you can trust if you trust the god of the bible then you can trust that his word is inerrant now again that doesn't mean you don't have issues to deal with translational issues transmission issues and like we just you know what we just showed there where there's issues where there's an apparent contradiction but you have but you have to have that attitude of okay it's not contradictory the problem is on my end okay and you have to work through these things and there's difficult things you got to work through and and uh, you know and I, sometimes i i think to myself why didn't you inspire lord a little you know so we're gonna have, but i think you know i've heard people say this and i think it's true that he wants you to show that you're willing to spend the time you know and, not, and so you have a heart for that and so but he always there's been probably that i can think of 20 or more situations where i've read and i'm like okay the only reason i didn't freak out is because i like okay i know this is apparent contradiction and there's a couple of them that i really did go okay this is really going to be hard to resolve this and then but i just i go to the lord i'm like lord i know this is your word according to your will according to your time frame i, I would like wisdom on this to understand this and every single time it may not be right on the spot sometimes it has been sometimes it just all of a sudden it clicks Sometimes it's down the road when I'm studying something else and then just, I'll hear something. I'm like, ah, it'll take me back to that place. I'm like that. Okay. But, you know, so he'll do that if you're searching with your heart, what, you know, his wisdom. And that's the key. The key there is asking for his wisdom. So the Bible is not just, you know, laid together in a way that there's, you're not going to have challenges and issues and, and things to deal with. Right. And he did it all for his own purposes. And again, I don't know his own purpose, why he did it specifically the way he did it. And sometimes I, I ask, you know, but I, I do know this. I submit and I say, the way you did it is better than the way I would have done it. I know that for sure. Even if right now I can't understand why you did a certain thing the way you did it. We, you develop that trust in him knowing that his way is better. No matter how much it hurts, no matter how much you're confused at the point in time, you, the longer you're a Christian, the more you experience. He vindicates himself every time. It just may take some time, and so you got to trust him in the midst of those things. And the more you study Scripture, you're going to come across things like that. But I am glad you have that attitude because it's very important. Because there are Christians I know who I really think are born again, and they'll say, "Well, I'm not sure it's inerrant." And I look at them, I go, "What parts?" Do you think are inerrant? What parts do you think are? I'm not sure. I'm like, boy, that would be a really, really hopeless thing to try and figure out. You know, I don't think you can do that because then you can. Because then you can start. A lot of times that is, you start picking and choosing what you want to be inerrant. Yeah, that's usually how that goes. I don't like what this says about women pastors, and so you're like, okay, I'm. A, you know, maybe you're a woman who's kind of had that history of being a feminist, and you get saved, and you're like. Well, I want to. I don't want to believe this, and so it's so direct and so clear. You just say, "Well, maybe this section here is is not." You know, you see how that that can work. Oh, sure. But I think that's a hopeless cause, and that's what I always say to him. I'm like, I couldn't imagine not fully trusting the Bible and having to figure out, okay, this seems true? like really true, and this one might not be true. And I talked with Wit about this several times. Is that that's one thing that I've struggled with a lot of different things as a Christian. But for some reason, just about the day after I believed or a week after I believed, I realized, okay, this is God's word. How could it possibly have error? 
you know, I just, that stuck my, you know, just something I never really struggled with. Like I said, there's been a few times I've come across stuff. I'm like, okay, how does that work? Well, you know, hmm, you know, but again, over time, but even then I thought, okay, there, this appears to me to be contradictory, but I know it's not. I just don't understand how I'm going to resolve this yet. And uh, a lot of times I just do it for preparation for conversation because people will people who people, a lot of people know a lot about the Bible who are unbelievers, yeah. and it's sad they, because they're they can right. They're basically that you know, and some people are just into spiritual religious things and they are into the Bible. But of course, if you're if you're not born again, you're gonna you're gonna distort it. You're gonna see what you want to see. You're gonna claim what you want to claim. And uh, but I but I know that's the only way somebody genuinely can trust in the absolute inerrancy of the Bible is if they believe in the God of the Bible, and that happens at regeneration. And even then, it's, it can be a struggle. So it doesn't surprise me when anybody challenges the Bible. But you still have to be prepared if you're going to engage people that these issues will come up. All right. So there's issue number. Two. All right. Now, again, you see, I think it's important to note in this. You see, in verse, uh, verse three, or no, verse four, when they came to his, when his Jewish intermediaries came to Jesus, they said he is saying he is worthy for you to grant this to him. Okay, and then you see in verse. Six, when he when they were on their way, he sent the friends to him, saying, "Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy." And so I think it's important to know that you are worthy, okay, of the Lord's of the Lord in a sense when you know you are not worthy. And so the reason that he's worthy of the Lord to do this is because he knows. You see, he's humble. He, he doesn't even want the Lord to come to his house because he's, he, again, we talked about how many times in the scripture whenever somebody is confronted with holiness, it, you don't have, it's very, it's, it's traumatic if you know your sinfulness. And so it's not that he didn't want to be around Jesus, but he recognized his unworthiness even to be in his presence. And, he, and you can see that he also believed that he was God because he you know, the second half of that where he says, you don't even need to come to my house to heal this guy. I know who you are. I know what you can do. I'm a man myself under authority. I tell you know he says I tell this person to go and he goes and so and uh, and so he knows that Jesus has the authority to do this without even coming to his house. And that's exactly what happens. He doesn't even go to his house. He heals him on or uh, what do you call it? Not not locally, not there in the presence of it. He just does it from a distance. There's a word for that. I'm skipping my mind. So you see, he had the two ingredients of saving faith. He was humble. He knew he was not worthy to be in his presence. He knew he was a sinner. You know, he knew from his heart that he was sinful, and he he was bro he was mourned. He was broken over sin to the point where he didn't even want. Even though he wanted his slave healed, he didn't even want Jesus to come all the way to his house because he was intimidated by his holiness. And that shows you he's a humble, repentant man. And then also he knew he was God because he knew he, he could, not only could he do this, he didn't even need to come here to do this. He had that kind of... Uh, 
He was, he's just a centurion. Yeah. We'll know in glory. Yeah. We'll be able to, uh, that'll be interesting. I always think about that, these people in the Bible. I know. Will we be able to find them just... and say, hey, tell me about that experience. I bet that was awesome. Or Paul, you know, can you imagine sitting down with Paul for a couple hours saying, oh, yeah, you know, tell me about your vision when you were taken to heaven. I know. But again, we know that this person was the reason he believed and the reason he was humble is because God had chosen him. He regenerated him. And he, it doesn't say when he was saved or anything like that, but um, it seemed like the fact that he helped the Jews build their synagogue, verse 5, that he had what I would call Abrahamic faith in the in the in the Messiah to come that he was he was a you know because obviously the we're talking about faith in the Old Testament was you were looking forward to the Messiah to come you knew God was going to make an atonement for you one day and you believed in the Messiah to come and so he probably had that kind of faith and then of course when he had heard about Christ he recognized him as the actual the one who was to come and he believed in him and he obviously believed in his deity or he wouldn't have sent um, sent him to heal him and then you see Jesus what he says about his faith he says not even so this is a Gentile it's another thing to notice here he's not a Jew and you see this happen frequently in the New Testament where the Jews are sitting there telling him that he's a he's demon possessed and he does his powers by the by the devil and that he and they try and stone him and they and they reject him on a broad level where these gentiles and there's another there's a woman who who talks about eating crumbs from the table you know that's kind of the same humble broken uh, faith and I say this all the time there's no such thing as saving faith that is not humble penitent faith there's no such thing Saving faith is always humble faith, knowing that you don't deserve it, knowing that you don't deserve to be in Christ's presence, and that's what he, this man had. And so he. I noticed down there that there was one of three centurions located, like featured in the New Testament, who gave evidence of genuine faith. Mm-hmm. There were only three. Yeah, one of them, one another one was at the cross. I'm, I'm, I, yeah, that must be Matthew 27 and then Acts 10. I'm not sure about which one that was. So yeah, these centurions, I guess I think that they were in charge of 100 soldiers, so they were like commanders, and that's what he says. is like, hey, I have authority. I say this person to go, and you go, and then he's got slaves too, and he says, I tell this person to do this, and they do it. And so he had authority over a group of soldiers. So yeah, there are three that do appear to have saving faith but then you see how Jesus turns it on he's like not even in Israel have I found so this person where it does appear that he had some kind of association with the Jews by building their synagogue and he sent Jewish elders and so he had a connection there but he clearly didn't have the light that the Jews had they had they had the oracles they were given the oracles of God and they should have been the, the, if anybody should have recognized Jesus when he came, it should have been the Jews. Because they had the Old Testament that predicted, prophesied all these things about him. And of course they rejected their, their Messiah. For now, they will, they will in the future finally believe in him. But you see here where Jesus commends his faith. 
Jesus always commended humble faith in him. And of course, he, when he returned to the house, he found his slave in good health. So I think that's another good, clear picture of what salvation looks like. Um, but wouldn't that be an incredible thing to be able to experience that, just have somebody who you care about, you know, basically not just sick like a flu, like a cold, somebody, and it says he's about to die, verse 2, and then to see that he miraculously gets healed by Jesus just speaking the word, the word from however far he was. All right, well, that's all I have pre prepared, so do we have any questions or any other things we want to discuss? I just, the only thing I was just going to mention is I listened to John's sermon on faith. Have you listened to that one? Oh, what is saving faith? No, I have not heard that one yet. That's good. I've listened to the Killing Sin one a few times, and that's really <laughs> yeah, it. But with saving faith, is, is really, really good. Good. I, I, it's, I, he's, I think he's on vacation or... He hadn't been hadn't had been anything new for a while right. since June. He usually does that every summer. I've noticed, especially now. But I went back and I go between the sermons and the broadcast because. Now you know I've told you this that maybe I've told you this that in January he's going to be in Atlanta. That would, that would be a road trip that would be really nice to go see because not only him, there'd be many other very. I'd like to go. I mean, but wouldn't that be awesome to see him preach? I'd like to. We've tried a few times, and, and it was crazy. Is he'll, also, he'll also be in Louisville in April, but that's like mid-April. Oh, it used to be the 1st of April, which is like maybe, but almost impossible. But now mid-April is impossible. But for one day? But you, you got to buy the whole thing. Oh, I just it's, like, it's like $300 or more. I'm not paying $300 here in Bray, sorry. But I like to. They do have events and things where they have the bookstore open, and, and sometimes. I, but it's hard to know when he's going to be there, and you know. But Atlanta in January. That's the first week of January. It's that's always that's my time where I'm done for a month. I know. Well, I know Steph wants to hear him preach too. So it wouldn't be. I mean, what you could spend, you could make it reasonable. Now it's a whole. It's like two or three days. So you'd have to get a hotel for a couple of days if you wanted to stay for the whole thing. But that's not as expensive. That's like 130 to 150, and so you wouldn't necessarily have to sit through every one. And there's a lot of good stuff going on there too. So maybe we'll do it sometime. Maybe we'll do it this year. But because he won't be preaching much longer, we do know that. <laughs>